0: cool welcome guys welcome continue school of the bible um last week we finished genesis now we're moving on to exodus right everyone's favorite book right the book everyone's familiar with at least we all know a story from exodus we all know about moses Uh, we've all seen that movie prince of egypt right all seen prince of egypt so i think um it's one of the popular stories even like secular people know it and and all that so You'll find that what happens in the movies is very different to what happens in scripture, right? So let's see what actually does happen. So you have the book of Exodus. Who's the author of Exodus? Moses, Moses right? Um, still part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Exodus divides into three sections very nicely, right? So chapters one to eighteen is the actual Exodus, you know. Uh, It's the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. And then chapters 19 to 24. So 19 to 24 is the giving of the law, right? So the Ten Commandments. And then 25 to 40 is the tabernacle. So this first section will do the Exodus. And then next session we'll do um, the law and the tabernacle. right? So let's start with the deliverance from Egypt. So we saw when we finished Genesis that the story wasn't complete. There were all these promises given to Adam and Eve. There was the promise of the seed um, that would make things right. uh, Who would crush the serpent. There was given to Abraham the promise of the land. Right, a promised land for him and his descendants. God had told Abraham that his descendants would spend 400 years in another nation. Right? They would be exiled in a foreign land. This exile began in the days of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, right, who we saw a bit of uh, last week. So it began in the days of Jacob and his great-grandson, Joseph. So the descendants of Abraham went down to Egypt. There were 70 of them in total. And after that, 400 years later, They're a great nation, right? A great multitude. So in those 400 years, they multiplied. So that's where we find ourselves today in this session. Um, The descendants of Abraham are in Egypt, and they're multiplying. Uh, The Hebrew people are growing to be a large number. So at this point, we're going to refer to them as Hebrew people instead of Israel. Because remember, they only become Israel once they've left um, Egypt. The reason why they're growing in number, sorry, they're growing in number, right? And... Because of this, they become a threat to the Pharaoh because he's like, okay, what if now these people outnumber us and then they partner with the enemy and they attack us? They've won, right? And this Pharaoh who comes into power, he doesn't know Joseph, right? He doesn't know of uh, the God of Joseph, right? He just sees these people, but he doesn't know how God uses people to save the whole world, right? So he oppresses them, but um, it does not keep the oppressed nation from growing right they're oppressed but they still keep multiplying they still keep growing um, and so the next step that pharaoh took was to instruct the hebrews the hebrew midwives to kill any male child that was born to israel right because that eliminates the line so just to draw a timeline so we can see where we are in redemptive history So, 2000 BC, that's when we have um, Abraham, right? So, Abraham is here. And then, he comes after Abraham 400 years later? No, not Noah. Noah. Moses. That's what I'm looking for. So we're here to discuss Moses. So, Moses is born around. Uh, one five two six BC, right? And then the exodus happens eighty years after the birth of Moses. So this is one hundred forty four BC. Four four six, right? And then when do they enter the promised land? Do you guys know? 40 years. 40 years after that. Right. So it's going to be... Okay. So that's the timeline we're working with, right? So the book of Exodus is about Moses, right? It's also kind of an apologetic for the leadership of Moses, Right. Was Moses always a popular leader? He really wasn't. Right? Um, people often got upset with him and the nation of Israel at some point, they wanted to get rid of him. So Exodus shows us that it's God who chose Moses. Right? Moses did not apply to the job. Right? God wasn't accepting CVs or anything. When God appears to him and says, this is what I want you to do, Moses actually doesn't want to do it, right? He's hesitant. He's like, I don't want to do this. I'm not good enough. This, this, this. So Moses never wanted power, um, authority or rulership, right? But God wanted him and God uses him as his instrument to deliver his people out of bondage. So if we turn to Exodus chapter 2. So Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she, could no hi- when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And you guys know the rest of the story, right? Uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds baby Moses floating down the river in a basket and takes him. She sees that this is a Hebrew child, right? So she arranges for a Hebrew nurse to come and nurse the child. And it's really God's providence because who is the Hebrew nurse? Who ends up raising Moses? His own mother, right? So it's really God's providence. Moses' mother ends up getting to raise her own son. And remember that we're looking for Christ, right? We're looking for Christ and themes and big links. The first of them, while it's not clear, is that Moses is described as being a fine boy. Right? So it's not clear in the English, but what it's really saying is that he was good. So the Hebrew is literally, she saw him, that he was good. Right? So that language reminds us of creation, when all that God had created was good. We see God doing creative works all the time. Right? We saw it with Noah, when he created the world anew again. And now he's going to create a nation. He's going to create a people. Right? We're going to get the nation of Israel, and Moses is the catalyst for all of that. And scripture says, when they cross the Red Sea, that's when the the nation of Israel is birthed. So there's a link back to creation, right? God is at work here. So God is already at work in Moses. And verse 11 to 22, we see Moses flee to a foreign land called Midian. Maybe you know the story. Like I was saying, there's the prince of Egypt, right? And uh, I think what happens in that movie, like uh, Moses is, he grows up in the Pharaoh's court and, you know, he's best friends with the Pharaoh. And uh, I think he's in charge of, like, uh, the construction of a building. And then one day he sees, uh, he accidentally kills a worker, right? One of the workers there. So he accidentally kills them. He's like, oh, no, this is bad. And then he runs away, right? He flees. Um, Is that what happens in Scripture, though? Not quite, right? So what's the biblical account of the story? So turn to Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. So Hebrews eleven twenty-three 23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. But that did He did strike someone down. He did. But I'm saying, like, the story around it is not the same as um, the biblical account. So there, in, in, the, in the movie, it was kind of like accidental it's construction, whereas here he sees um, an Egyptian attacking, beating up a Hebrew, and he's like, you know, puts them down, right? And you also see how he was raised, right? Basically he was born, he grew up, and he got an education under the Pharaoh, right? As soon as he got the ed- education, got his degree, his master's, PhD in Egyptian, everything, and he's like, I'm out, you know, I'd rather be mistreated with my people the people of God, right? Whereas like in the film, I think it shows him as just, you know, he loves being part of the Pharaoh people and it's just different, right? So one day, like I said, he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, uh, one of his people, right? And then he strikes him, kills him and hides the body. And then the next day when he's breaking up a fight between two Hebrew slaves, uh, he finds out that they saw him kill and hide the body. Right? And then the Pharaoh finds out and seeks to kill him. So Moses leaves Egypt. Right? So even in the movie, the movie portrays um, Exodus as being a competition between Moses and Pharaoh. Right? But really, it's a competition between God and Pharaoh. Right? It's a competition between God and the false gods of Egypt. Right? That's what we actually see happen in Scripture. So Moses goes to Midian, where he finds... Um, the local branch of Reformed tinder. right? We talked about Reformed tinder. right? you guys know what that is? It's the well, right? So in, in, in scripture, a well was the singles club. If you went to a well, you'd find a wife or a husband. Um, so he goes to the singles club and verse 16. Now the priest, so I think in, yeah, chapter two, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters And they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water with their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses is a type of Christ, right? He sees an injustice against the vulnerable. He protects the ladies and saves them, and then he tends to their flock. He's a godly man, and he points to Christ in his behavior. He marries Zipporah, whom he met at the well. And they both swiped left or swipe right. Like I've never used that app, so I don't know how exactly. But yeah. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue. Came, sorry, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Right? That's a comforting passage. Um, God in our sufferings hears us and he knows what we are going through. Right? He's sympathetic to his people. He's moved. But the, re- the main reason why he's moved and why he's moved to action is because of the covenant he made with them. Right, You see that. Because right? he sees these people crying and then he remembers his covenant. The means God... Uh, what God that God works through is through the covenants, right? It's on that basis that he's going to keep them. He remembers the people as they cry out to him in their suffering. And you really see that through scripture. When you get to the prophets, he'll say, um, I will destroy this nation. I'll destroy Israel. But I've remembered my covenant with Abraham or Noah or with Moses, you know, and he says, I will, not, I will no longer give judgment. And at this stage, right, the people are definitely not Orthodox Jews, because they were worshipping pagan gods, right? They didn't even know God's name anymore, right? It says so in the book of Jew. So they're using the generic word for God, which is Al, you know, like where we get Elohim from. So they're using that instead of his covenant name, which is Yahweh, right? So they're using Al, they're crying out to God instead of crying out to Yahweh, because they don't know him anymore, right? So you guys do know the difference between that, right? You know Elohim is like a generic word for God, so you get Elohim, right? And then you guys know of El Shaddai, right? What does it mean? It's God the Mighty, God Almighty, right? So you'll be surprised. A lot of like names like um, Daniel, right? It has L at the end. It's God. I think it's the strength of God or something like that. So, E-L is God, right? And a lot of biblical names have "el" because it refers to God. So, God is with us, the strength of God, in the sight of God, etc., etc. I just can't remember, like, the correct term, so don't take those as my definitions, but you can look it up. It's very interesting. So, chapter 3, if you go to Exodus 3, um, in Scripture, God often you love to use this form of teaching called show and tell. So, Moses is a shepherd in the wilderness during this time, right? And... He's walking his sheep, and often men that God uses in the Bible start of as shepherds, right? So they learn how to look after little sheep before they graduate to looking after people, right? Before they graduate after looking after, to looking after God's people. Same thing with David. Uh, Moses goes 40 years learning what it means to be a shepherd, right? And one day he's walking along and he sees a bush burning, but the bush is not being consumed, right? We all know how fire works, right? Fire needs a source, You know, fire needs a fuel. Um, But this bush, you know, it's not reliant on anything, right? It's like it doesn't need the bush. It's a self-sustaining fire. And that is the show part, right? The The little picture of the burning bush is going to be explained by God himself. So we know God tells Moses to go to Egypt to go get his people away, right? To deliver them. And then he's given all of these instructions. And so Moses asks in verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Right? So do you see how that links to the bush? Right? He's not contingent on anyone or anything. Right? God is totally independent. Right? You can't ascribe him with something else. Right, there's been some. So there's been some, some issues with translating uh, this name, right, into "I am" or "I am who I am." Um, some scholars think it should be "I will be who I have been." People are the gate. are they? So some people would describe, would uh, translate it as "I will be who I have been," <laughs> which kind of is still the same, right? Means the same thing. God is saying I will be who I have been like I am, you know, in the middle of that is I am, right but um, it's, we still get to the same point, right, this is the independence of God, he doesn't need anything he's totally complete in himself even before creation, God wasn't alone, right, he wasn't lonely he liked nothing, right God doesn't need oxygen, he doesn't need food he doesn't need rest he needs nothing, he's totally complete within himself, right, he doesn't need people he doesn't need you and me right? Before the beginning, God had himself, Father, Son, Spirit, right? He was in perfect fellowship with himself. One God, three persons, which is very important, right? We are monotheists, right? There's only one God, Um, but is a Trinitarian God. That's his nature. If you take Islam or Judaism, what do they teach? They teach just God, right? Uh, But if that is your definition of God, if that's your complete definition of him, then he's lacking in fellowship, right? But there's other... Problems with their definition of God. We won't get into it just yet. But um, as we go along, we'll we'll see and discuss the nature of God and who he is. So verse 18 of chapter 3. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God gives Moses this mandate to say this to the Pharaoh. He ends up going in chapter 7. So if you go to chapter 7, and the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Right. So you have God saying to Moses, uh, I will make you like a prophet. No, so I'll make you like God. And Aaron shall be your prophet. Right. So from here, you can somewhat derive the definition of a prophet. What would you guys say is a prophet? How would you define a prophet? Person who speaks on behalf of God. on behalf of God. Okay. Anyone else? someone who sent
1: okay.
0: someone who represents God to the people, someone who represents God to the people. Hmm. anyone else oh, okay. sorry messenger from- a messenger from God Okay. I like that I think all those fit into the definition right uh, Moses in, is in charge, right? And whatever Moses tells Aaron to say, he will say. So people today, when they say, um, yeah, this guy's a prophet, you know, and he's training in his prophetic gift, uh, or he, she's training in her prophetic gift, and, you know, she's getting 75% of the prophecies correct, you know, she's almost there. Um, you're like, it's nonsense, right? Because prophecy is God speaking, right? It's God speaking to his prophet, who then says exactly what God says to, the, to God's people? He doesn't dilute it, right? He doesn't mix it up. He doesn't say, "Okay, maybe like I'll just edit this to be this way or that way." It's God's word, right? And as God's word, it is binding. As God's word, um, so I always say, if someone says to me that they're a prophet and you know they say like God has said this, 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 you know, you might as well open the back of your Bible and then start writing more pages into it because it's the word of God, right? So I think this is a good definition of a prophet. Someone who God speaks to directly in various ways, but what they say is the word of God. Verse 16. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, send me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. So when, Ma- when Moses gets to Pharaoh, he says, Let my people go, so they can serve me in the wilderness. Right? And um, has anyone, have you guys heard of liberation theology before? Liberation theology. Litavo has. Okay. Anyone else? So Exodus is, is used a lot by liberation theologians, right? Um, who then say that the main focus of the Bible is God delivering his people from oppression. Right? Uh, the famous guys are like Martin Luther King Jr., Desmond Tutu. They, are, they hold to liberation theology, Right? And does God deliver people from oppression? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. he does. Right? We see him do that. Right? Um, But it's the wrong hermeneutic that they're using. Right? They're not interpreting scripture the correct way. Right? Because what liberal theologians mean by oppression is a physical oppression. Right? God will deliver uh, you from being oppressed by this people group this kind of oppression from this kind of thing, right? And liberation theology interprets scripture through the plight of the poor, right? Through the struggles of the oppressed. They will tell you that Christians must work toward a just and equal society and bring about social and political change and align themselves with the marginalized, right? You hear a lot of that language today, right? Sounds good, but biblically, what is the problem with it? Well, for one, if you read verse 16 again, right, there's a reason for God liberating his people. And what is that reason? So that, they may serve. that they may serve him. It's that they may worship him, right? That is the intention. It's not that uh, I'm ju- uh, God is just going to come and deliver people from <laughs> slavery and oppression for the sake of it, right? He does do that. You know, we've seen him liberate people, um, save people from uh oppression and difficult situation. But God's plan of redemption is bigger, right? It's the bigger picture. It's the bigger plan, right? What is the greatest oppression that exists against anybody, against women, against children, against the marginalized? It's sin, right? Sin is the biggest oppression, right? And what does scripture tell us? It says, either way, we are slaves, right? It's either we are slaves to Christ or we are slaves to sin, right? It's either we're slaves to Christ or the devil, Right. And that is the biggest need we have, is to be freed from our sin. So what is the point of liberating someone from socioeconomic issues, you know, if, they are still, if they're still damned to eternal suffering and misery? Right. And I think the issue in like social justice movements today is they aim to make the main point of Christianity a social reconstruction. You're know, you a Christian, so therefore you must you know, you must do this, you must do this, which is all good, but um, we call to make disciples, first and foremost, you know. Um, And personally, I reject it because as a whole, it's not derived from biblical categories or definitions of justice or of right and wrong, you know. Um, We're calling things evil, but does God see them as evil? Are they sin in God's eyes, you know, and if we are fixing them, what are we fixing them to? You know, how are we what is justice? What is equality? Biblically, and is that our goal? So, unfortunately, I see a lot of professing believers in it try to make Christianity like credible and more relevant, you know, to modern society by saying, "Okay, we also believe in that. We'll, we'll do exactly what you're doing, but um, our allegiance is to Christ first, and we do what God says is wisest." So Moses and Aaron they go and do what the Lord told them to do, right? And what is one of the miracles that God does before he starts the plagues? Turns, yeah, turns Moses' staff into a snake, right? Uh, glad he doesn't do that today because imagine you see an old man walking towards you on the one side of the street across the road. You never know. But then the Egyptians do the same thing, right? The Egyptian magicians. Um, and how do we explain that? You know, how do we see... Um, God doing miracles through Moses and then the Egyptians replicating it, doing the same thing on the other side. It's a demonic, right? Don't be phased by it because the Bible teaches that that is one of the ways that the devil is going to deceive and that he can perform miracles, right? In fact, the book of Second Thess- Thessalonians, uh, I think it's in chapter 2, it says that one of the ways that people are going to be deceived is with lying, so deception, signs and wonders, Right? miracles and uh, great signs and great wonders. So don't think if a guy is doing miracles that he's automatically of God. Right? Satan can do miracles in people. Right? How do we know if a guy is a man of God when he's doing all these miracles? How can we tell? Is there a way to tell? At I was pointing at his Bible. Are you, are you trying to say doctrine? Yeah, I think one of the main ways is you will know them by the fruit, right? The fruit is primarily what they teach, right? Their doctrine, because doctrine is a matter of life and death, right? If you get your doctrine, your doctrine wrong, you will be deceived. Right? And First John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Right. So that, that passage mainly talks about doctrine, among other things, but the larger teaching is you will know them by their fruit. Right, And so... God begins the plagues against Egypt towards the end of chapter seven. And the plagues are not random or arbitrary. You know, I used to think um, God was just like, Oh, you're gonna to... oh so he's saying no? Okay, fine. And then, you know, he deals out bigger or harsher judgment. But you'll see that as you go along through the plagues, God targets the things that the Egyptians worship. Right? They worship the river Nile. And what happens to it? It's turned to blood. Right. And the livelihood of Egypt was completely dependent on the river now. So once it turned to blood, the fish died, uh, they started to rot, and the Egyptians actually had to dig around the river, you know, to access water to drink. Right. But the magicians of Egypt, what do they do when they see this? Right. They duplicate it, right? They do the same um, miracle. They turned more water to blood which is not what Egypt needed at the time, right? So it's like, oh, great, more blood. So their work only reinforced the judgment of God, right? And you can see how pride can make you very foolish. They worship some of the animals, and those are killed, right? Uh, This is the fifth plague, and it came upon all the livestock of Egypt. All their cattle died, but the cattle of Israel were spared, right? They worship the sun, and the whole land is darkened except over the Israelites in the land of Goshen. So that's, that's kind of... I try to picture that. Like, What does that look like? It's like, Is it like a spotlight on, on Israel? But it's, it's amazing. right? And that's the ninth plague. It's one of great darkness for three days. And you'll find, as you go through the plagues, you'll find the phrase I, that I will make a distinction between you and my people which God keeps saying, right? He says that in chapter 8, verse 22, uh, 9, verse 4, 9, verse 26. The Egyptians will suffer these plagues, but God's people won't. And remember, when there's separation language, it reminds us of Genesis and of creation, right? There's a distinction. There's a separation that God is making. God is creating for himself a people, a people in the line of the seed of the woman. So God is showing graphically that he is the one and only true God not these false gods that they worship, right? And in the last plague, in chapter 11, the death of the firstborn is a dramatic attack on the false gods because who else did the Egyptians believe was God? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? The Egyptians believed Pharaoh was God, right? And uh, and that uh, the son of Pharaoh, the next in line, was going to be the next God, right? And so God will kill the firstborn and he will eliminate all hope, in the false gods of Egypt. And so in chapter 11, Moses goes up to Pharaoh and says, verse four, so Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out into, sorry, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle. Verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Either man or beast. That you may know that the Lord makes makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Right. And then in chapter 12 we get the Passover. So what is the Passover? It's the 10th and the worst plague. Right. Which was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. So. Um the night of the uh, the passover god tells the israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb right an innocent lamb and mark their doorposts and lintels with the blood of it right and the passover is a clear picture of christ right and you can even see it when christ is called what he's called the passover lamb right families like i said they took a little lamb and they would kill it but you weren't allowed to break the bones of the lamb you weren't allowed to break the bones and what, does, what do we learn from, I think, is the Gospel of Luke, is that Christ on the cross, none of his bones were broken, right? And they would take the blood and put it on the doorframe and on the lintel, so all across the door. And the angel of death, when he saw it, he would go by and pass over that house, right? So that no one in it would die. Now, when Christ comes and he dies for us, scripture says that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right, and when the angel of death death sees us, we will not die in eternal death, right? But if there's no covering, judgment will fall upon you, and you will have to pay for your own sins, right? And so, even in the description of it, it says in every household in Egypt there was crying because every every firstborn died, right? So it's it's really dramatic. It's it's like it's crazy. You can only picture just like. At midnight, every firstborn in the land dies. It's just death. It's crying. Um, you know, like, so I think it's one of those things where you're saying, like, like, God is not to be messed with. You know, God is serious. He's serious about, first of all, his righteousness and his holiness and people who have sinned against him. Right. But also about his people. So it's really kind of comforting in a strange way. It's like, you know, my God will go to such lengths um, for me as part of his church. And he went through the greatest length in the death of Christ when he did this to his own son, right? When he put the punishment on his own son. And so, finally, this breaks Pharaoh, right? He's had enough. I mean, it's been ten plagues, you know? And finally, he lets the people go. And before we get to that, what difficult doctrines did God and Pharaoh's interaction bring up? Do you guys pick it up? Sorry? The question of free will. Of free will, yeah, 100%, right? Free will, election. And I think we discussed it in one of the, the previous lessons, um, although not in detail, right? Because at the start of the whole interaction, what did God say he will do to Pharaoh? He said he will harden his heart against him, right? As you go through the text, you see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But the text also says that it's Pharaoh himself who hardens his heart. So which is it? It's both both, right? And most people's objection is uh, around God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You know, God, God brought it about, so why should we pay for our sins, you know? Um, I can't be responsible if God is sovereign, because you know, he governs all things, right? And Paul uses this example in Romans 9, right? So Romans 9 verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. So God chose Pharaoh and hardened his heart. And Paul says, "Won't you say, isn't that unfair?" You know, because that's what we tend to say. It's unfair. You know, God raised him up. God used him for this, right? And what does Paul say to, in response to that? He says, "Who do you think you are? Who are you, O man? Right? Who do you think you are?" Questioning God. Don't get the idea that Pharaoh wanted to love God, but God would not let him, right? Because is that what go, what's going on? Is there anyone who, in hell who says, I came to Christ, but he turned me away? No one is turned away from God, right? Pharaoh was a terrible man. He was a blasphemer. He was arrogant. Um, he was proud. He oppressed God's people, right? And God hardens Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes, Right, it's like the Puritans would say. They have this analogy. They have this uh, saying where they say, um, "The same sun that hardens the mud melts the wax." Right, which is quite a profound statement because you get the picture of your heart. Right, the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. Right, but who gives the heart of flesh? You know, none of us are born with the heart of flesh. Right, it's God who has to save us. It's God who regenerates us. It's God who created us a new being. And so in chapter 12, verse 33, eventually Pharaoh gives in and says, they can go. They leave. And what happens when they are leaving? What do the Egyptians do? They give them all their gold and money, right? They give them everything. Like, here are your possessions. Here's the silver. And that is the law of retaliation, right? It's an eye for an eye. God never punishes more than what they deserved. Right. The Egyptians were getting free labor for hundreds of years, for 400 years, but the, and the Lord makes sure that they pay up every single time for that, right?
1: Oh, sorry, earlier uh, on you talked about like liberation theology, so I yeah. think there's also an idea of like restitution, people talk about like this passage, um, mm. the Egyptians giving like the Hebrews all gold and stuff, so yeah.
0: of using the law of restitution. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, if, if you're going to apply that, right, you must apply it consistently. You know what I mean? You can't just say restitution, you know? Because, like, who is being restituted here? First of all, to God's people, you know? And then there's other, like, surrounding laws, I can, if I can put them like that. And, um, okay, like... I want to get, when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll discuss it because that's where we see like the law being fleshed out and civil laws and all the types of laws, because we have to discuss that because like why, for example, you know, like they say, shouldn't we still hold to the law as the Old Testament said? you know, shouldn't we not eat pork, shouldn't we, Da, da, da. So I think when we cover that, lo- those books, then we'll get to answer that more clearly. And then I'll mention how the inconsistencies between that and the social um, justice movements. So yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, with uh, when it comes to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, mm. uh, wouldn't you agree that that's a temporal hardening of uh, Pharaoh? Uh, uh, I would like to think maybe even uh, people in the New Testament, maybe uh, Paul was also hardened by God. Mm. Uh, would you say that was a permanent hardening or that was a more like? temporary hardening of his heart so that and probably that could have led to him repenting after the children of the israel uh, moving out of egypt Mm. after him seeing all the glory which was bestowed within the land of egypt so so
0: I mean, on the one hand, um, like, I want to say permanent, because, you know, he's not saved, he's, like, you know, uh, he's in hell, right, Pharaoh. Um, But the thing is, uh, to use, like, temporal or uh, permanent, um, uh, it's kind of hard to to answer it in that way, right? Because the thing is, right, um, you see these things happening to Pharaoh, and you can see there's, like, sorrow or regret, right? But in Scripture, we also taught that there is a a sorrow or regret thats that doesn't lead to repentance, you know, and there is one that does lead to repentance. So I think I would describe, like, a heart as just being hardened until God doesn't harden it anymore or makes it, gives you a heart of flesh. You know what I mean? So the way I think of it is you have a heart of stone until God, you know, brings your life. So, because when you say temporal, it's like, okay, just for this period, I'm going to, like, maybe harden your heart and then... I will open you up your eyes, kind of assumes that before that, like, you know, his heart wasn't hardened, whereas I think by, na- by nature we're against God, you know <laughs> by nature we don't want God you know, so Pharaoh wasn't necessarily um, seeking God or... yeah, wasn't re- really seeking God <laughs> and the, yeah but
1: wouldn't you say his heart during that time was so depraved for Allah
0: so uh, I like, like, uh, okay.
1: Kevin goes on to say that uh, oh, okay. I think uh, there was a time when God said something and other members of the Egyptians left their livestock or something. Mm.
0: Yeah, but he oh. still resisted. Okay, okay. so it's almost like God is making me extra, you know, I, I saw that. Okay, yeah. Okay, like, okay, when you put it like that, I, I do also see what you're saying. Where it's like maybe God is removing all means of grace of from Pharaoh to you know see that you know this is God this is like God that you're going up against you know this is what He's doing uh, your people are dying because the river's been turned to blood so uh, if you say, like if you put it like that where it's like a extra hardening you know then yeah yeah uh, I see I see what you're saying uh, I would agree with that does that make sense to everyone else? Yeah, I, I would agree with it. Um, I think it's God just removing like all means of grace for Pharaoh to, you know, come to his senses or see, you know, um, God. So yeah, does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Um, so the Egyptians uh, have to pay back, right? Um, so they give all their gold and all their silver as the Israelites leave. Then they get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind, right? Super hard and hot and um, chases after them, but God comes between them and he splits the sea and he causes the waters to crash in on Pharaoh and they all get wiped out, right? And God's people cross over into the wilderness. And then when they're in the wilderness, remember uh, last week, I think we talked about the legs of God. The legs of God being a pillar of fire by night and uh, clouds by day, right? We see that. We see God walking with his people and they come to Mount Sinai, right? So we've seen the deliverance and how Moses was chosen by God. And this event really is like the, the main event in the whole of the Old Testament, right? They use the word epochal. It's the epochal event in the Old Testament, Even today, the closest thing to our redemption, right, in the Old Testament is this, right? This is like the clearest picture of Christ's redemption of us, right? It describes our salvation. Before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. Same way the Israelites were slaves to Egypt, right? The Hebrew nation never got rest, right? They worked 24-7, right? They worked day in and day out. Before Christ, we have no rest from sin, right? We are slaves to sin. And Pharaoh is like Satan. He gives us no opportunity for rest. Right? He wants us to suffer because he hates God. Right? And he hates God's people. But God delivers. Right? And it's amazing in chapter 16, uh, God even reinstitutes the Sabbath day. Right? He brings it back so that his people can finally have rest. Right? So you see amazing pictures of that, um, of our salvation and uh, links to Christ. You know, so it's painting. The clearest picture in the Old Testament of the gospel. So we get to Exodus 19, Um, we get to the giving of the law, right? The Lord brings them back to where he met Moses in the burning bush. And um, so we've spoken about covenants last week, just a bit, and how they weren't like contracts, right? Where you sit down and discuss and negotiate, right? Um, A covenant was more like what's called the Treaty of the Sides. Right. That's a French word, so I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but there was something called the Treaty of the Size, right? So, in a treaty, you get what's called uh, suzerainty, right, which is the greater power, so you get, like, a strong bigger player in the covenant, right? And uh, a good example of it is colonization, right? So, South Africa and Britain, back then, Britain would be the suzerainty, because they have all the power, you know, they and they're making a treaty with us. And so the treaty would follow this order, right? There would be the introduction of the suzerain, like the king or the prime minister, and what he has done, right? Then there would be a list of requirements that he required from the smaller state, right? The smaller party. And then he would state the consequences for breaking that covenant, right? Blessing if you keep things. Otherwise, you know, we will destroy the nation because they had the power, you know? So, the, 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 the smaller nation didn't really have a say in it. It's like, okay, we accept your terms, right? And there would be witnesses, and there would be two copies made of that contract in a treaty, right? Just like how there were two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So, um, the first tablet, most people think they had, like, the first four commandments, right? Which are called the vertical commandments, because they deal with God. The second tablet would have the six commandments, which deal with people, right? And... Some have said that's how the, the, the Ten Commandments were copied, um, But others think it's like a, a treaty where you actually have 10 here and 10 here, right? It's two copies of the same thing. One belonged to God, but obviously God doesn't need his own copy. right? So um, So you have the Ten Commandments Moses wrote on the tablet, and uh, okay, it's break time maybe we'll get into this next session because it is actually supposed to be the second part so we'll get back the 10 commandments guys let's take a break then